Welcome to episode 43 of the Champagne Comedy Podcast, where we talk about the best Australian comedy show from the 90s ever made, Frontline, and other degeneration comedy tidbits. My name is Matt, and joining us on this podcast today is Alison, Daniel, and Kim. Hello. Hello. Good to be back. Yeah, it's, the, I guess, the bare minimum. <laughs> we need to get this podcast going, right? Yeah, you can't do it by Are yourself, I'm afraid, Matt. Prue and Tony are off doing their own thing. They have lives. Yeah, what, yeah, what does it say about us? <laughs> We're doing a podcast. <laughs> and you, the listener, uh, downloaded and listen. Uh, anyway, enough uh, demeaning stuff. It's not really feedback or anything. It's just more or less news and just generic news. If you're not following Working Dog Productions on their YouTube channel, you should be by now because they've been very active lately, sharing clips, uh, high-quality clips from their back catalogue. So you've had late show. They've been popping up a lot of late show stuff lately. Uh, Some Funky Squad, All Aussie Adventures, The Castle. You never know what will appear. Yeah, they've been quite topical, haven't they? So when the Red Hot Chili Peppers were here, they had a, a clip from The Late Show. Yeah, they've uh, they've also just done their first um, compilation from The Late Show of uh, quite a few Rob Sitch uh, impressions. Yeah, also uh, every Sunday they're uh, putting up uh, a bit of classic Have You Been Paying Attention uh, from the very first uh, season back in 2013. And gee, isn't it amazing to see how much it's changed uh, from uh, from then till now? It's quite amusing to see how much he's actually trimmed because I've still got, oh, I've got every episode of Have You Been Paying Attention that I recorded and you, you could kind of see how much has been trimmed, <laughs> which is quite amusing. They did say initially it was going to be full episodes, but as far as I can tell, it's sort of like best ofs because, um, yeah, I'm pretty sure even with the ads cut out, the episodes didn't run to 12 or 15 minutes. Any kind of overly cautious vetting yeah. that went on? It's, a, it's quite possible. Uh, but it's, it's, really, uh, it's a really good thing to see that um, all of these clips are coming out officially, uh, that there's somebody there going through the archives and uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully getting the views, hopefully getting ads put up against it. So uh, uh, this can only be a good thing. Keep it up, uh, and yeah, there's definitely an audience out there that are going to be watching. If you want to check out you, uh, Working Dog's YouTube account, it is Working Dog Productions, and now you no longer have to deal with low-quality resolution videos like the Arnold Schwarzenegger one, uh, which has someone put up about 12 years ago. It's got over 5 million views. So <laughs> start watching it on the official channel. Start watching the, the, the official version, which at the moment is only sitting on 1.3 thousand. <laughs> 1.3K. Cool. Go watch that one. Yeah. They need the views. Oh, Jesus! <laughs> Daniel Jean, his program guide. <laughs> All right, um, so uh, we still haven't gotten to a response uh, in the Green Guide letters page to uh, Ross Warnicke's, uh blistering review of the first episode of Frontline. That won't happen until next week's Green Guide. 
But in the meantime, he has uh, provided a bit of an update about what he thinks uh, in his uh, Rewind column. Uh, so this is from Green Guide, Thursday 19th of May. He writes, Fans of the D-Generation have been quick to criticise this column's lukewarm reaction to the first episode of Frontline. After all, some callers pointed out, it scored a rating of 24, which is exceptional for the ABC. But criticism of TV or films or anything else is not a matter of picking winners. Ratings measure audience numbers, not program quality. Many of those who admire Frontline satire, for example, would sneer at A Current Affair, one of the shows that Frontline parodies. But ACA has even more viewers. No, ratings measure what people are prepared to watch. As such, they are a perfectly legitimate business tool for executives deciding where to spend their advertising budgets. But the suggestion that a scientifically objective measurement of quantity, the number of viewers, is in any way uh, reflective of quality, a purely uh, subjective matter, is wrong. By the way, Frontline improved considerably this week. It still lacked immediacy, but the humour and the plot, checkbook journalism, were more sharply focused. So wow. he's starting to uh, come around a bit. But you know what? We, ha- we haven't even given him official water key. It's been a while. So, yeah, he is coming around and uh, how can I say it's... You know, at least, Diplomatically? Yeah. <laughs> yeah yes. It, it's, do you think his arm's being twisted? <laughs> how we mentioned in a previous episode where it's more or less adapt or, or sink. It doesn't sound like it. He, he makes a good point that, yeah, a critic's role is to um, try and discern the, the, the quality that's out there and, yeah, what, uh, what rates well isn't necessarily good quality. I found my old university textbook, The Media in Australia, which is from 1993, and it talks a bit about um, people meters and, and ratings and, and audience measurement. And uh, the people meter was uh, introduced in the early 1990s. And obviously, as Wanaki points out, um, it just shows, doesn't show um, how much people like a show or what attention it's being watched because you could be doing something else at the same time. And um, it can only give an approximation of the number of people watching a particular program. And I think in that time, um, you know, more channels, there was more, people were kind of what they called zipping and zapping and kind of switching stations and that whole fast forward style um, approach so you, you couldn't really tell exactly what what people were thinking about it so I guess he has a he has a, a point there when he's talking a little bit about the measurement of the success of a program but uh what 24 is is pretty good because I think in this episode they were going on about how great the the 25s were for them and the frontline show and uh, speaking of uh, changing channels uh let's have a quick look at uh, what's up against uh tonight's uh, episode of frontline that we're looking at in Healthy, Wealthy and Wise at 7.30 on 10, Lynn Talbot looks at some of the toxic substances found in the average household. Jim Brown explores Queensland's Glasshouse Mountains. Tonya Todman transforms a simple terracotta pot into something stylish. Ross Greenwood explains how parents can help teenagers explore the business world. And Ian Hewitson prepares Murray Perch, whoever he is. <laughs> Uh, over on Channel 9, uh, tonight happens to be the first game of the 1994 Rugby League State of Origin series from the Sydney Football Stadium. And uh, showing how far we've come in terms of uh, who gets to see what, it's, uh, it only seems to be live going into Sydney from 
So, I mean, these days, uh, certainly, uh, State of Origin would be live all around the country. You know, maybe it might be on 9GEM instead of Channel 9, but, um, uh, yeah, certainly in Melbourne, it didn't start until 9.30pm. So, uh, in that uh, delayed two hours, Melbourne had instead uh, Murphy Brown at 7.30, Fraser at 8pm, and then at 8.30, to paraphrase a classic Aussie movie, there's only one thing better than Red Faces, and that's the best slash worst of Red Faces 4. Oh, wow. So, again, another sort of similar thing. Yeah, we seem to be getting a lot of Hey Hey uh, Best Of specials, even now. I think for the next two weeks, it's the best of the uh, Russell Gilbert show coming up. In fact, part two will be hosted by Mick Malloy. Really? Yeah. Wow. Or presented. So part one will be Daryl Summers and part two will be Mick Malloy. At least that'll be a bit uh, refreshing for people who are sick of Daryl. Over on Channel 7, another Sydney-Melbourne divide. Uh, Talk to the animals in Melbourne and in Sydney, uh, they get a repeat of MacGyver. According to the Sydney Morning Herald, MacGyver steals an ancient Chinese artefact to save a woman he once loved. Over on SBS, it's another episode of Maiden Voyages, a British series following women travellers across the globe. In this episode, writer Bettina Selby follows the ancient pilgrim's road to Santiago de Compostela. Oh, I've been there. <laughs> I went to a wedding that was there. How was it? It was, yeah, yeah, that's in Spain. Very nice. A lot of people make some pilgrimage up there. I don't even know who Bettina Selby is. And uh, the ABC had its usual lead-ins of 7pm news, 7.30 report, uh, and then uh, Frontline at 8, 8 o'clock. Uh, Four Corners at 8.30, Media Watch at 9.15. And then in the 9.30 time slot vacated by Roy and HG, it's Dawn French and Jennifer Saunders in French and Saunders. It's the first episode of Season 4, which originally aired in the UK back in February of 93. So it's been a long time coming. 93? And... Wow. Yeah. So uh, this one includes uh, quite an interesting sort of parody of uh, Stay by Shakespeare's sister, except uh, this one's Destiny by Dickens' Daughters, <laughs> as well as a parody of a movie which you might recognise because um, it's been parodied by uh, The Late Show as well. Have a listen to this. You've written a show all for yourself. I'm not in it at all. Not one icky So there we have it, uh, French and Saunders' own take on misery. I love you, Mick. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, sorry, that's from another show. (laughs) All right, let's get into uh, the episode proper. Every time you give a dumb answer, I get a point. First one up to five. If you win, we go to the supermarket. Okay, if you win? No supermarket. There's a marriage breakup. One parent takes the child in defiance of a court order. There is no need to fear a recession in any sense. This is a recession that Australia had to have. You could actually tell the TV set what you think and have someone take notice. Hello, I'm Kim. This is Season 1, Episode 3, City of Fear, broadcast Monday, May 23, 1994. Thank you, Kim. Hmm, nice work there. So the synopsis, <laughs> the breakdown of... So was that really hard to do? <laughs> yeah. You're, you're going next time, Alison. Mike makes it look so easy. Okay. Yeah. 
So the, the rundown of Frontline for City of Fear is uh, Frontline is accused of being a sensationalist after it links two unrelated murders to a mythical serial killer. Meanwhile, Mike is confused over his fan mail. Yeah, plus uh, we get a uh, cameo from uh, the host of Media Watch, Stuart Littlemore. When did Media Watch start? What year was that? Uh, 89. So, so it, it, had, it had been going on for, for quite some time. And it's it's kind of I think it's interesting seeing uh, Stuart go to town on on a fictional uh, target for once, and talking about how Frontline have worked themselves into a frenzy over a series of unrelated crimes against Asians and Italians, and uh, calling it xenophobic hysteria. Yep, years before someone was asked to explain what that meant. <laughs> <laughs> you know what that made me think of? That made me think of um, African gangs when they're talking about knife-wielding Asians and, you know, beating up all these stories about ethnic groups, you know, because this, this kind of stuff doesn't go away. They just change the ethnicity of the people they're attacking. <laughs> <laughs> that is true, isn't it? Mm. Now, also, I, I have to admit, with this, this opening before, the, uh, well, just after the title's um, airing of Media Watch here, I did the most pedantic thing and looked up all of the dates that were shown on the on the, the bottom of the screen saying, you know, what episode of, of the fictional frontline it was from and check to see whether they were all weekdays. <laughs> and what so did like, you come up with? There's one that's a Saturday. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Didn't you spot something when when we did the late show? It's something about the Olympics dates and broadcasts or something. I vaguely it remember was that it was that the it was judges' scores along the bottom, and it was the fact that they didn't add up to the right amount on screen. Ah, that's right. <laughs> that's the type of pedantry we like around here. So, yeah, there, there, were, there were clips supposedly from the 7th of February, uh, 22nd of February, and the 3rd of March, uh, which was Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday, respectively. But then there was the 19th of uh, February, which happens to be a Saturday. Oh, you've just done your own media watch on media watch. <laughs> well, see, maybe, maybe you know, maybe it's one of those small, small errors which is meant to to trip up pedants like me. Maybe, maybe it was a deliberate error. I commend you for your efforts, and that's what this podcast is about. Going to great lengths over nothing. Do you think it was a deliberate error that Stuart Littlemore called it front line? Oh, oh okay. yes, I lo- I love the word, the way he pronounces front line. And now to our friends at front line. Other than uh, the running joke throughout the entire episode of the camera guys and playing pranks with Mike being the first victim. <laughs> so, Seemingly the only victim, I think. Yeah. Oh, there's there's another victim coming up. Oh, yes. So Brian runs through the show planning with Emma, such as Brooke doing a piece with Gary Sweet. Uh, that is, you know, big TV star. Big, big in the uh, 90s, early 90s. Uh, but we'll get to that a bit later. But... I do have a Konica watch. Hey. <laughs> oh, he's been spotted. Yes. <laughs> he's in the background working away. So that that is my Konica watch. Now someone's going to say that's not the sound of a Konica. That's a <laughs> Toshiba or something. Yeah, Toshiba. <laughs> <laughs> and thank and thank you all you pedants out there for listening. I will give credit, though. I think we've started something here because ever since we've mentioned Colin Conacher, someone, and it's not associated with the podcast, but someone's created a Colin Conacher Twitter account. So, <laughs> <laughs> what, 
Was it you? No, no, no. One hundred percent. It's got n- nothing to do with me. Oh, I'm not that smart. No, it's actually <laughs> Colin Conacher. Yeah. <laughs> There's photos of all his work as well. So wow. Credit to quote Colin Conacher unquote. <laughs> yes. I think that needs oiling or something because that sounds very squeaky. That photocopier. Yeah. Okay, I'll work on it. No, no, but this is, it needs Colin's skills to come in and fix it. Yeah, getting Colin Conacher in to fix a photocopier doesn't sound like an episode of Frontline. It sounds no. like it might lead to something else. Yep. <laughs> Bit of a fan club. So Mike is taking the time to respond to fan mail, which gets a bit more interesting, uh, the, with the office hiding negative ones without his knowledge, uh, but is concerned about the Media Watch show ripping into the show. So this, I do, did enjoy this chat um, of a certain word. Anyone um, watch Media Watch last night? Oh, that self-indulgent crap's still running. Huh? You really had to go at us. I'm telling you, mate. I mean, you know, you've got a hand at man. It's some telling points. Sort of... Nobody watches it, man. I don't. <laughs> Him. Okay. <laughs> really? See, nobody watches it. Self-indulgent crap run by a pontificating, self-righteous little nerd. Mm. He does pontificate, doesn't he? A holier-than-thou crusade. He belongs with his red wine sipping mates down at the ABC. Yeah, I, I just ran past him. I agree. Mm. I mean, mm. yeah, well, don't worry about it. <laughs> I mean, he's yeah, he's such a pontificating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then every everybody turning around and going, "Did you?" Yeah, I did see Media Watch last night. What does that so-and-so know? I do like it how later in the episode, you know, Mike is kind of slagging off Media Watch again and Emma has to help him to remember all the words of, of why he objects to Media Watch. <laughs> yep. So, so she goes, so she, she very, go along yeah, she very quietly goes pontificating and then he goes, oh, pontificating. And then she goes, self-righteous. And then he goes, self-righteous, like this. Mm. <laughs> you know, he can't remember why he hates him, but he does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You just reminded me too. We've got to point out half the podcast has been following a guide, the frontline book, the script book. Now, mm. what did you two, Alison and Daniel, discover today? Well, not today. Well, <laughs> While watching this episode, this episode is not in the script book, so we don't get to refer to it. I mean, having said that, the first episode was quite different to you know the script was quite different to what was broadcast. The second episode was was much more closer to the script. But so we we can't tell you anything about what the script was like for this episode. It's purely guesswork. Yeah. But yeah, this this is the first one, uh, the first episode we don't have a script for uh, because there's only 10 out of the 13 scripts from the first series. So uh, it's missing out this episode, episode three, as well as uh, episodes 10 and 13. Uh, Well, we'll have to uh, wait until next time to uh, break out the book. And I realise, of course, episode 13 is the last one of the series, isn't it? Which means that we don't get to see Colin Conacher's one line of dialogue written down. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. So that's a shame. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so now Brooke has wrapped up interviewing Gary Sweet, uh, the star of ABC series Police Rescue. <laughs> Just, it's a classic ABC show. I've got the box set behind me. Starring Russell Rock. <laughs> All 
ABC themes, all ABC shows of that era had a theme song like that. If you if you get out your um, DVDs of Phoenix and Janus, you will find that they have a, a very similar sounding theme tune. Sinister, mysterious, but with that classy saxophone with it. But yeah, um, Police Rescue, Gary Sweet was very much a, a heartthrob in the mid-90s. You know, the ladies would get a bit excited about Gary Sweet and possibly some of the gentlemen as well. He was... Very, very much a pin-up guy. Yeah, he passed era. me by. <laughs> Don't know about you, Alison, but <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I he wasn't he wasn't my cup of tea. I, I was I was more of a late show cast kind of girl. Yeah, but, uh, that's why we know. Here, so <laughs> there were there were certain certain ladies and gentlemen who did enjoy Mr. Sweet's work. Yeah, didn't he pose nude or something like that for Cleo or Cosmo? He did, didn't he do like uh, a oh. Surely there was a lovely piece of gauze over the appropriate body part. <laughs> I don't, I don't yeah. know about that, uh, but um, uh, he was also, he's also well known for um, uh, other TV series like Cody, Big Sky, um, Bodyline, which was his first uh, major role, um, portraying Donald Bradman, uh, Stingers, and uh, most recently, uh, most famously, House Husbands. He's also appeared on Media Watch as well. Has he? So in 2004, Gary Sweet uh, became the public face of the Performance Pack Initiative, an information campaign for men with impotence problems. Now, uh, yeah, it was only meant to be an information campaign because there's banning against uh, directly advertising prescription medicines. So, you know, any of these ads where you're told to talk to your doctor about, in this case, impotency, Basically, that means that all of those doctors have been clued up by the drug companies to push one particular drug. He wasn't meant to directly mention the drug that he was spruiking, but he accidentally did so on Adelaide Radio. So that's how he came to be on Media Watch. Ah, but um, that that pontificating, <laughs> self righteous. <laughs> Well, although, although it was a different host at, in the early noughties, wasn't it? They, they little more had left, and I can't remember who it was at the, in that era. Was it Andrew Ollie? Uh, uh, no, he, he, been, he no, died Mar, in the nineties. Oh, I, I, was, I, I wasn't able to find the, the the actual transcript from two thousand and four because the the Media Watch website has changed, so you can't look very far back into the archive. Um, but uh, that's that's not his most heinous um, uh, bit of work, I think, because uh, he, he also released uh, this song uh, onto the airwaves. Most people I know think that I'm crazy. Yeah. I know at times I act a little hazy. But... Here comes a really good note here. Yeah, he released yes. the uh, cover of the Billy Thorpe song, Most People I Know Think That I'm Crazy, peaked at only number 52 on the ARIA charts. Oh, dear. <laughs> I think the backup singers are doing the hard work there, aren't they? He also seems to be, to be buried a bit further back in the mix, in my opinion. Yeah, exactly. So, Daniel, exactly. you're having a CD. Does this mean you own this? Oh, well, uh, this came off my copy of 100% Hits Volume 11. No, how can that be? I had like hey, volume three of that, and there were some classics on that one. And there, why would they have it on volume eleven? <laughs> to be also, fair, if it only got to fifty-two, what, you can't really call yeah, it a hit, can exactly. you? Exactly. 
No, well, if it if it didn't make it to the top forty, uh, and certainly uh, Gary Sweet's uh, song is buried right up the back of uh, Volume Eleven, Track Seventeen after Track Sixteen, which is Doug Parkinson singing "Where Would We Be Without A B." Oh, classic! <laughs> I don't think they had a budget to put these <laughs> this CD together. Who, who uh, Alan this? Border, possibly. I mean, yeah, Alan, the yeah, Alan Border. Alan yeah. Border. Okay. How much did you pay for that, Daniel? Um, I don't know. I think this might three hundred dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not three hundred dollars. Uh, three dollars. I, I don't think this is from an op shop. Um, I'm pretty sure I've I've had this for a while. I mean, I might have bought this at the time. I can't quite remember. Don't worry, mate. I bought this album, the the Dance Offensive, <laughs> off eBay for eight dollars. And how All offensive because, is it? Well, I bought it purely because of track uh, thirteen. Bruce Samazan, one of a kind. Oh, yeah, rare. Yes, <laughs> very rare. I wouldn't and pay more than ooh, eight bucks for it myself. No, so, mm. but hey, track fifteen is, is Mick Malloy's favorite group, <laughs> group the Teen Queens. Maybe it's you, <laughs> hey. anyway. So, but that, that's a different thing. That's going off topic altogether. I was just going to mention some of the other songs on here. So, like, we've got you know Snoop Do- Snoop Doggy Dog's debut. What's my name? <laughs> Uh, it's 17 with It's All Right. Oh, that's my jam. Yeah. Cornflake Girl by Tori Amos. Oh, yeah. Love that song. A, uh, oh, it's got D-Ream. Things can only get better. But they didn't I, because yeah. that was track nine and then when we got to track 17. It... Can I tell you one thing? <laughs> when I say when it's my jam, like E17, right, this is completely off topic. It was my first serious, well, sorry, quote, girlfriend, unquote, like, sorry, serious, <laughs> as in, Whatever it is. Anyway, it was in high school. I was under peer pressure to ask this girl out, even though I liked her. And then she said, yeah, well, rejected me for the first time and then said, eventually said yes. And then it wasn't until, uh, and I was I'm so bloody shy, uh, really didn't hang around her at school, even though I should have. <laughs> I was really young at the time. And it wasn't until a blue light disco, uh, I was told by her friends, if I don't go over and dance with her, I'm dropped. And then... Here I am hanging out with my mates and I'm going, oh, I don't care anyway. So I, I tried to make the effort at one stage uh, and then it didn't happen. And so I was dropped and oh. I was a little bit upset because the reality was, oh, crap, I just got dumped. And then, bam, E17, it's all right, came on the thing. And it's like, hey, everything's all right. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say that would that actually drew you back to the dance floor. No, that but was that... One of those, it makes, Prue would say a banger back then. Yeah. <laughs> But I listened to the lyrics of that song and I went, yeah, you know, everything is all right. So anyway, there's a bit of personal history there. I, I don't blame I think we need, to, we need to do a spin-off relationships podcast based on oh. that anecdote. Oh, God. Well, you know, we are, we are the seed of not. a new breed. We will succeed. <laughs> Our time, time has come. come. <laughs> I'm reading it right from the, from the uh, booklet here. Was it, uh, we are the... We are the new, these words are few. Oh, sorry, true. Uh, let the light of the shine through. It's all right. It's all right. All right. Everything's going to be all right. All right. Um, just, just before we, we get off uh, Hang on. 100% Daniel, hits, uh, Daniel. Yeah. yeah. Has it got dupe by dupe on oh, it? Oh, I've got that CD single. Uh... <laughs> I think that's slightly before that's 90, volume 11. I think that's 96. No. From memory? Oh, No, it's I, 94. 94. And I know this because we are 
currently watching repeats of Top of the Pops from 1994, uh. and Dupe is on it. Dupe was number one for several weeks in Britain, yep. anyway. That was my first so CD Dupe single. Like, that's the first CD single I ever bought. Like I, I wow. bought I, Dupe. I, I, wow. Dupe. Dupe. Like uh, I, I bought how, albums. How very but, rock wins of you. Yeah, and in fact, at one stage, yeah. my cousin ripped the cover because it was cardboard sleeve, and then I was like, no, and then I, this is at my grandparents, and I was viciously putting it back together with sticky tape. I've got it in my storage container. So, yeah, it was Aww. that, and Jimmy Barnes sold deep, and that was from, yeah, that's the first album I ever bought. Just before we move on, if you want to know more about 100% Hits Volume 11, uh, you should listen to uh, this excellent podcast called 100% Hits Volume Pod. Josh Earl and guests are going through uh, every 100% Hits uh, compilation in order. I think they're somewhere in the early 20s at the moment of about, I think it's 33 or so, 100% Hits volumes came out. Um, but yeah, very entertaining uh, going back through not only the hits, but um, yeah, there's some crap on, uh, on these compilations as well. <laughs> nice. Well, and not Gary Sweet, of course. Speaking of Gary Sweet... While he did cover Billy Thorpe, you remember in episode two of Frontline where Mike Moore was talking about, oh, what would it be like to host Midday? Because Darren Hinch was hosting Midday at the time. Yeah. Well, guess who performed the song together? Oh yes, oh, they they Hinch. do they they do talk about this on the the uh, podcast on the one hundred percent hits podcast. Uh, so I won't spoil it for you. Here we go. If that's my way, you should. Billy Thorpe there. And then he passes the baton onto Gary Sweet. Yeah, again, I think the backup singers and the midday band are doing the heavy lifting there. <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh, and that was when Darren I think, Hinch was I, I, think, I think between the two grabs, we've just about played all of the song. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> and uh, hey, you just got to make sure you get the police rescue soundtrack because it's from the movie. So the camera guys are doing uh, pranks again and the second victim is Jeff and his time-lapse camera take a look at it again frame by frame there you go did you see that did you see it there you go that's not a sunset that is a full moon brilliant that's a brilliant <laughs> delivered line <laughs> well I like how uh, so it's it's a really really urgent matter and Dominica's saying well that weatherman that weatherman his name's Jeff because he's you know Jeff and, and Mike are just best buddies, and Jeff seems to be a little bit overlooked over there. People don't even know his name. <laughs> so the freeze frame. I think the, the other thing I like is is uh, one of the lines from Jeff uh, saying that uh, he can feel it in his bones that it's Stu and Jace. So the old freeze frame trick, hey? Yeah, the Baywatch thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, the yeah, slow motion. That? Yeah, that's right, when they're pointing out the blooper on yes. the late show. <laughs> so Mike is stewing over Media Watch still and his fan mail and <laughs> Which just well, happens good. to be uniformly positive. Yeah. 
And Brooke is pissed off that her profile piece on Gary Sweet is thirty seconds short. Well, that I mean, this is this is setting it up for later, isn't it? When um when they sort of they follow Brooke's editing notes, which basically contains a lot of footage of her, and uh, well, she gets her comeuppance. Yeah. I think the point is proved that it's a bad idea to just have a Gary Sweet profile, which is kind of seventy five percent Brooke. But that's that's the sign of the ego um, coming from Brooke directly. There. So while every, all the ego has been concentrated on or well, the spotlight being on Mike, Brooke is starting to, I guess, show more. If that makes sense. Yeah, she's being she's being more assertive and pushy, isn't she? Really. It's also interesting uh, seeing Mike uh, want to get his hands on a bit of contra as well. Mm. Oh, With the <laughs> the simple question, still going to that uh, that gym, Brooke? That's a re- recreation, I think it's called. Yep. Sly bastard. And we have uh, their musical Friday talent, which I guess echoes the whole Clark and Door with Elliot Rhodes. Yeah, it's a it's not a not a great sort of version of the Friday Night Funny Man Elliot Rhodes, but I think it allows them to sort of take the piss out of the worst um, topical comedians, I suppose. So Elliot's song he does the Johannesburg Tango, the Tango, of course, being a famously South African dance, and. <laughs> And essentially he just sort of, I don't know, he, he just references a few South African identities and, and a few, uh, you know, one or two things that the average punter might know about South Africa and sets it to a tango. And that's kind of it. You know, there's no there's no real satirical point in his song. It's just, I mean, God knows how you would actually describe it, uh, apart from total crap. <laughs> <laughs> And, of course, the floor manager has to gesture to Mike, make sure you're smiling. Yeah. She, 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 she does a lot, a lot of pointing around the mouth. Yeah, I always enjoy it when, when Mike has to back announce um, Elliot because he does the best fake laugh, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Elliot Rhodes there, you know. <laughs> so that's and, and then funny. And then has to pivot into some of the most uh, clickbait, well, I suppose clickbaiting in today's <laughs> terms, uh, in promoting uh, the show on Monday. Doctors of Death. Just how safe is your doctor's surgery? Doctors of Death, the chilling expose no one can afford to miss. I don't think Doctors of Death is quite as good as the Pants Down Dentist, which was referenced <laughs> earlier. They, they just, they're just in, in a previous scene, they're talking about all the things they're going to have on the show and they mention Pants Down Dentist and they just kind of leave it there and you kind of think, well, we don't really need to know anymore. We've sort of got in our heads what a Pants Down Dentist is. <laughs> Yeah, and they, they're going to pay uh, $2,000, but um, also going halves with a new idea. But if it's too tacky for them, go for Woman's Day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which, into, well, today, it's actually owned by the same company. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mike probes the camera guys about Jeff's full moon, and God, didn't he uh, get some resistance as well? So they stuck to their guns. And then while working back late, the cleaner unintentionally hands Mike uh, his hate mail. Oh, See, that grubs universal. Really didn't do a great job of getting rid of it, shredding it. Just kind of put it in the waste paper basket right there. No, it was very obviously placed on top of the bin, wasn't Mm. it? And um, yes, I think Mike finds out the reality of what the public really thinks of him. Yeah, he's so upset that he's there before lunchtime. Mm. Now, Marty's working on a serial killer story while Emma and the production team uh, discover that Brooke's Gary Sweet profile 
video has too much brook and not enough sweet. Well, I mean, it, it doesn't it doesn't get much better than the, the, the dialogue there. Uh, if we follow the instructions, the story's going to look like a dog. To which Emma says, "Well, if that's the way she wants it." Leaving leaving uh, our editor Hugh uh, in a uh, in a coughing fit, a a, per, a perennial coughing I, fit. I I love the character of Hugh. I, I love the character of Hugh. Like he's kind of up there with Jan for me as just someone who normally appears once or twice, very briefly in an episode, and just you know is funny. Hugh's basic stick is you know he's constantly in the editing suite. He's chain smoking the whole time. But there's a nice little twist to that. Um, he starts having a coughing fit and then he takes a puff on a cigarette and then he, in his other hand he's got an asthma puffer and then he has a puff of the asthma puffer. <laughs> so he, he's not exactly living the healthiest of lifestyles, but but he's a, he's a funny guy. He does have a, a full name. His full name is Hugh Tabarg. Yes. Which uh, Tabarg just happens to be the surname of the offline editor of Frontline, John Tabarg. I don't think there's been anything officially linking the two, but uh, I'd say that, uh, yeah, it's pretty good odds that, uh, yeah, Hugh is named after John. Well, also, do you notice in the credits that the producer of the show, you know, the, the sitcom Frontline is called Emma, which, of course, is, is made me think that, well, the producer of the fictional show Frontline is also called Emma. So I'm wondering if that's... Oh, yes, Emma, Emma McLean, yes. Yeah. So Brian and Jan are sorting out Mike's hate mail woes. You're the man who asks the tough question. The sort of questions Hinch would be asking if he weren't stuck interviewing Jade Hurley. You're a vampire feeding off the suffering of others. <laughs> so you got my letter. Piss off, Marty. <laughs> yes, there's only one way to deal with that, and that's, that's call Jan in, isn't it, to, and to so soften, j- soften the blow and, and boost up Mike's ego yeah. a bit. And so Jan does suggest... Uh, to help his insecurities, uh, to do a willacy, and that is to interview a child with needs. Uh, that's not to get pissed on air, as Marty quips. Yeah. <laughs> Sadly. <laughs> a challenged poppet, I think it was, was the reference. Yes, yes. We'll get in a little challenged poppet, and uh, and Mike can, someone who hasn't been dealt the best of hands in life, and, and Mike will interview them, and so then we, we get an, a sort of story where Mike hangs out with a little kid in a wheelchair. And with what's the music? I gotta know what love is. That, that, that can only be a reference to Quentin Canahan. Definitely, yeah, definitely. I remember Willacy and Quentin, and and then they talked about the the child with the aging disease, and that was something that I remember back in the eighties, watching that and being extremely scared <laughs> that that would be like contagious or would happen to me or something. But those types of things really stuck in your in your mind when you were a kid when you watched that sort of thing. So. They definitely did have that emotive kind of effect on on people, particularly young people who were watching that as well. Um, but that's um, definitely something they adopted there. I'm not sure what the the child in the, the wheelchair what was what was the issue with the child in the wheelchair is just a child in a wheelchair. R- ratings was the issue. Yeah. <laughs> yes, ratings was the issue. I, I think didn't they mention something about the the child um, had a terminal illness or something? I mean, it, it doesn't matter. It's so cynical, isn't it? The the whole yep. point of it is, and yeah. so many current affairs shows have done this, they'll they'll get on a, a child with some kind of disability or, mm. you know, terminal illness or whatever and, and do a kind of folksy interview with them, you know, to make the host look so, like they've got feelings. Yeah, yeah and they you said know. it was actually a, a letter that arrived, but I, I highly doubt that. It was just something that they, someone that they found 
Do you have other means? So Brian tries to join the serial killer story uh, with a special needs child. Something for everybody. Exactly. <laughs> but Mike presents Marty's story. Investigative. Investigative. In, investigative. Investigative. Five seconds to it. Investigative. <laughs> and does he say Investigative. Properly? Yeah. Or investigative. That's how I got around. Yeah. Like, I know it's wrong. It's like harassment and harassment. And with the reenactment of a child being kidnapped, uh, followed by the live cross to the city of fear, which is Knox. Knox. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of a shame we don't have our Melbourne residents here to tell us whether Knox is a particularly dodgy part of Melbourne or not. Mm. So r- write in if you know. Yeah. But um, can I? Can we just go back to this chilling reenactment? So, so basically, they have this kind of grainy black and white footage of a of a little girl riding a tricycle, and then you see a car with a with a man sort of holding a lollipop. It was a chupa chup, isn't it? And gesturing the girl on the tricycle to come into the car, and she gets into the car, and they drive off. And then Marty walks into shot, and it goes color, and <laughs> you know. And it, it is the most ridiculous reenactment. If anyone out there has ever seen the British sketch show Brass Eye, um, it mm. is it is exactly like Brass Eye. The main thing I remember from that Brass Eye episode was the was it Phil Collins and the keyboard? <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that someone's going to write in and tell us what flavor chopa chop that is. Oh. <laughs> Please do. You mean you have you haven't freeze framed it and worked it out yourself? <laughs> oh, please, anyone know? It's... And 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 that was and that was the broadcast quality portion of the episode, yes. not the the, the the crappy high eight, you know, through film and then back to video again, which uh, which we're always crapping on about. Yeah, oh, Prue's crapping on about. <laughs> <laughs> if uh. you watch it on a CRT, it'll be fine. Yes. <laughs> That's what it was designed for. Get your cathode ray TV out and, and watch it that way. That's what we did <laughs> with our VCRs. Oh, incidentally, speaking of VCRs, I, in my uh, media book, I had this interesting stat, which I, which I just want to mention briefly before I forget. In 1991, 72% of Australian households had a VCR and more than 10% had more than one VCR. Australia Ooh. is second only to Kuwait in world VCR penetration. <laughs> v- VCR penetration is something you can pay an awful lot for. Wow. If you're really into that. Jeez. I'm too afraid to know what type of penetrations on those VHS tapes. <laughs> that's, that's what it says in the textbook. I'm, I'm sure there were a few chuckles in the lectures reading that. Well, we we really we need sort of Kelvin Cunnington to go penetration. Yeah. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> oh, so anyway, it's a it's a very serious statistic and suggests that lots of Australians were copying tapes, mm. or, or possibly had multiple televisions with VCRs hooked up to them. Yeah, well, if you wanted to, definitely not copying tapes. That would be illegal, of course. Mm. Yeah, because you you couldn't do two. You had to have two VCRs to to do two channels at the same time. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that as well. Yes. Unless you had one of those videos that could do two channels at once. I oh, yeah. know that you could you could watch live on one channel and then tape on the other. Maybe yes. uh, Twitter user Flemish Dog would answer that. 
So just putting it out there, here's a massive VHS Betamax aficionado. Also, while we're talking VCRs, um, the G-code is just around the corner. Ooh. Like uh, a couple of months away from appearing in the Green Guide. Mm. Of course, I mean, yeah, it would, uh, the, the, the G-code, if it wasn't built into the VCR, it was this little palm-sized device that you would sit on top of the VCR that sort of acted a bit like a remote control. Yeah, and um, would uh, and would essentially turn on the VCR, uh, put it to the proper channel as long as your channels were the same numbers as what's in the the guide. So two, seven, nine, ten, twenty eight. Yeah, switch it to the channel, record, and then um, you know after the time, press stop and turn the VCR off. Of course, all of this supposes that the stations are running to time, which. <laughs> <laughs> they certainly don't yeah. do nowadays. I don't know what it was like in '94. Well, didn't some some uh, G code VCRs? I remember there was like a, as a remote control, and you kind of scanned like a barcode that was printed in the TV week or something. Yeah, yeah that was the remote. That, was, a, that, was, that, was, that a, was earlier, I think, because yeah, I remember talking about technology. those. Oh, okay. Yeah, this one's was. Yeah, we never code. had G code. You know, I, I had to I had to stand there with the remote control, and and the advantage of that, I suppose, was that if the channel was running early or late, then you know, that was fine because I was doing it manually quite often. Remember uh, a couple of years later, I think it was in the um, late 90s, mid to late 90s, where they had the dot and that was for a Channel 7 thing. Where uh, Okay, was... that was actually, that was 2000. That was just oh. after the Olympics. Okay. And, yeah, it was a, 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 it was a competition where you had to get these sort of cardboard circles which uh, you then had to align on your uh, CRT TV, not that anybody had flat screens back in 2000, but yeah, you basically had to align the dot, stick it to your stick it to the screen, and then not change the channel for a whole hour while the Channel 7 show plays. And somehow that activated it somehow. I've got no idea how. And then you had to... Um, Drop it off at the BP... But yeah, you basically had to seal it up in a little envelope and then send it off to sort of like essentially the little cardboard circle somehow proved that you watched Channel 7 for a whole hour or whatever. I, 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 I just could not work out that technology. And I think that it's kind of like, you know, when you buy a scratchy, you, you just buy it and don't bother scratching. You just scan the barcode to see if you want. So, the, it's just like it cuts out the middle man it's like i don't have time for that did i win or not i think there was some there was some sort of a like a photosensitive film in it or something like that but yeah the 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 main thrust of it was that you couldn't even change the channel during the ads mm. yeah adopt the, the changer is cool. danger <laughs> speaking of danger let's go back to marty who's out in yeah. Knox. Hey, Marty. <laughs> City of fear. City of fear. And uh, and they catch the camera crew and the team off guard, really. One more, Mike. Two. Martin, what's the feeling tonight in Knox? Well, Mike, it's tense. <laughs> Driving their children to and from school. There's a sense of panic. <laughs> so it's weird. Slowly moving the lapel mic up on your shirt. It's more of a visual gag, but it, it's it's quite funny how the the camera keeps panning in and in as the as the hand moves slowly up um, <laughs> Marty's shirt to try and get the the lapel mic on his lapel, which they never quite succeed in doing, sadly. And I, I think this this uh, cross to Marty uh, in Knox, it's very indicative of something which is kind of weird and still happens in TV news to this day. 
and it's the the somewhat pointless live cross. Like there was no need for Marty to be there. It's sort of it's not really for information. It's just more for show. It's more for some sort of so-called veneer of immediacy. Just to show that they're out there and about. It increases the tension, doesn't it? You know, just makes it a bit more exciting. Excuse, yeah, just in case something does happen at that time. And then bam, it's like, oh, they're really... Which it never really, does. No. No, it only happened in, in the news re- in the newsreader, it happened in the in the series where they went out and about and then there was a big explosion. But it would probably never happen in, in Frontline. And I noticed that, that Mike takes a great, great pleasure in uh, taunting... Yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, Martin Marty later. Later. <laughs> yeah. When he realizes the the lapel thing, he can actually. Oh, I can get get him back now. <laughs> I can make fun of him. Sadly, Marty's a bit too quick, isn't yeah. he? When Mike does that, and he says, "Oh, Mike, I've got your latest mail." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and hands him a whole bunch of letters. So you know how uh, you were talking earlier about the kid with special needs that Mike was doing his you know, special friend. A little recorder. challenge mm. poppet. Yes. So he teases his feel-good special, right? Now, when the when he's pushing the, the wheelchair along on the pier, is that the same pier that's got the kiosk at the end of the pier? St Kilda? St Kilda? Yeah. Oh, mention, mention in, in the well, Melbourne I don't know Melbourne well enough. It probably is. Thank you, yes. Yeah. God, if only we had our Melbourne... Fishing artists, <laughs> our mm. Melbourne team. It does, it does kind of look like it. I, I would... You know, I think it probably is. Anyone know, let us know. So reach out, champagnelatechow at gmail.com or Twitter at Teela Champagne. I like the bit also in that sequence where, you know, they've got, I want to know what love is, playing in the background and everything. And there's a bit where, where Mike's trying to, he's trying to show the kid something and he's pointing in one direction and then the kid is pointing in the other direction and just completely ignoring Mike. The subtleties. The subtleties of just the, even the kids white-anting white Mike, <laughs> you know. What would be another good song instead of I Want to Know What Love Is for that? Something cheesy. Uh, it'd be like, you know, Some people there's like... a hero. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's, all, it's all all those kind of ballady sort of songs. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Thing on the pier. That could be highly inappropriate. <laughs> Sorry, what was that? Highly inappropriate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, eventually uh, we get to see uh, Brooks uh, Gary's. Uh, sorry, Brooks interview piece to which Marty says the interview has come up well. Who's it with? Ah, oh, not him again. <laughs> Uh, yeah, then uh, the ratings come out. So yeah, City of Fear, City of Ratings. According to Brian, uh, Melbourne was in uh, was twenty eight, uh, Sydney twenty fives, Brisbane. Forget about Brisbane. What were people watching in Brisbane instead? I think it's just more. Uh, there's this, there's this term. I don't know whether it's just in the ABC, but it was a term uh, where all everything that wasn't Sydney and Melbourne was called the BAF states. B-A-P-H, standing for Brisbane, Adelaide, Perth and Hobart. Basically meaning that, you know, you well, yeah, you can rate well in Brisbane, but uh, to use another late showism, who gives a shit? Melbourne and Sydney seem to be all that we care about. (laughs) Well, also, if you're in Brisbane, why would you care about a story about Knox City of Fear, which is in Melbourne? Well, you think, well, this doesn't apply to me. 
And and I th- I think you know as someone who grew up in Adelaide, you know, and most of the media was coming from Sydney and Melbourne, it it did very much feel as if you know Adelaide and stuff that was going on in Adelaide, no one really gave a crap about because they didn't because most stories were were about Melbourne and Sydney. Good point. Yeah, I've got the ratings figures for 1990 viewers in major cities around Australia. And the top 10, it's pretty much all the same, but they're all in different orders. So Sydney had funniest home videos as number one, but Melbourne had 60 (laughs) minutes. Um, And Sydney also had, after funniest home videos, was nine news, 60 minutes, a current affair, hey dad, country practice, sale of the century, full house, Cosby show and Burke's backyard. And about half of those are really products (laughs) of their time, aren't they? But yeah, Melbourne had magical world of Disney. A few um, cancellations. Melbourne had Magical World of Disney at number four and 60 Minutes was, was number one. And Adelaide, for your interest, also had Funniest Home Videos, Nine News, Current Affair, A Country Practice, 60 Minutes, Our World, Hey Hey Saturday, Seven News, Burke's Backyard and Home and Away. So after we find out that uh, this City of Fear story could be bigger than Blanglo, Blanglo, investigative, investigative. <laughs> we then find out the other side of the coin, which is that the the wheelchair boy piece rated not so good. Yeah. With yes. the, the very, it's a very dark line, I think, that the only follow-up to a story like that is today I lost a mate. Mm. Yeah. Very dark. Marty's story in regards to the serial killer comes undone. It turns out the whole thing was a custody dispute, which was quite awkward. And naturally, Media Watch were on it. Frontline, who are you trying to kid? That pontificating. (laughs) (laughs) That pretty much wraps up Frontline Season 1, Episode 3 and the Champagne Comedy Podcast, Episode 43. So, yeah, uh, yeah. and there was nothing special in the credits. I don't think there Uh, was. No, just that uh, double V is still in the, uh, uh, the end credits again. Ah. So yeah, pr- produced by Frontline Television Productions Proprietary Limited in association with the, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Uh, it's pro- probably worth um, mentioning uh, our uh, additional actors. So we had uh, Janet Johnstone, Tess McCormack, Mark Sergi and Neville Stonehouse, as well as Enga Aon Kaur as Kaur the Cleaner. And our special guests uh, were Stuart Littlemore as himself and uh, someone called Gary Sweet. Ah, oh, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why well, you've been playing that enough, it'll, it'll start charging. Oh. <laughs> You're going to be humming it all day at work. Yeah, and uh, the estate of Billy Thorpe will be reaping in the royalties. <laughs> Oh, well. Anyway, uh, so, yeah, again, that wraps up the podcast. So just want to say thank you very much for joining again for this uh, episode, Alison, Daniel and Kim. Yeah, always a pleasure. Shoot us an email, champagnelateshow at gmail.com, Twitter at TLS Champagne, as well as visit our website, champagnecomedy.com, Facebook, The Late Show page, um, and you can search for the Champagne Comedy Podcast on Facebook. You'll see a group there and join it. And, uh, yeah, just answer the three questions and you're in as well as our chonky uh, merchandise store at Redbubble. Just look up Champagne Comedy or Sparkling White Comedy, I should say. 
Again, <laughs> thank you very much, team. And uh, all right, we'll, uh, my name is Matt, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye. Have fun out there in the city of fear. Thank you for listening to the Champagne Comedy Podcast, created by fans for the fans. For more information on this podcast, please visit champagnecomedy.com. Produced by Matt Fulton Productions, mattfulton.com.au. Most people I know.